Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to read from Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over these parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, so Peter of Berea, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And those going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came on to them to throw us in five days, where we abode seven days. Right, we'll pause there. This wee section of text encompasses a period of well over a year, believe it or not, into that six verses. A very eventful year and a very fruitful year in Paul's ministry. And I think it's there in six verses just to remind us that the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write this historical account of the early church has not chosen to reveal every event in the early church's history. To remind us that what we have in the book of Acts is not the whole of the history of the early church. Just because this is six wee verses, that doesn't mean that major events are not taking place. In fact, this is extremely significant. It's a whole new chapter in Paul's ministry. He turns from being a pioneer missionary to being a pastoral theologian. He visits and cares for the new churches that had previously been formed on his earlier missionary journeys. And Luke's record changes too, for Luke records less pure history and more of Paul's words. For example, his farewell to the Ephesian elders, his defence before the people of Jerusalem and the various courts, his accounts of his conversion. Paul will be arrested, he'll be imprisoned. So although this seems insignificant, this wee passage is a transitional point in the history of the early church. And there's an emphasis on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus too, throughout the rest of the book, as Luke emphasizes the historicity of the literal rising from the dead of the Saviour. So, let's look at the passage. 
We've got three things to learn tonight. We've got to learn about perseverance. And then we've got to learn about perspicacity. And then we've got to learn about pastoral theology. So perseverance comes first. And we find that in verse 1 to 3. You remember that last week when we finished chapter 19, there had been a riot. That riot I've been predicting for weeks. The civil unrest and emphasis had reached an eventful end, thanks to the intervention of the town clerk and the realistic prospect that the Roman authorities may well intervene to come and restore public order. And that, for the Ephesians, would be a totally unthinkable sanction. So Paul is going to return now to Macedonia. He's trying to unite the churches. Remember what we learned before. He's hoping to bring together the Gentile and the Jewish Christians by reminding the Gentile churches, the wealthy Gentile churches, of the plight of the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Those Christians who have lost absolutely everything that they had when they decided to follow Jesus. And with the effects of a dreadful famine that had taken place. And so this is going to be part of his mission to Macedonia. He's going to preach, he's going to build up the church, but he's also going to receive donations from the wealthy Gentile churches to help their poverty-stricken brethren back in Rome. And he's hoping that in doing so, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians will come together, that the Jewish Christians will see how much the Gentile Christians love them, and the Gentile Christians will be encouraged to look after their fellow brethren in the Lord. Whenever you look at verse 1 to 3, you see two things. You see the extent of the journey that Paul made in his endeavour to preach the word and to bring the churches together. The perseverance is what we're talking about. The perseverance and the determination of Paul in his passion to take the gospel throughout all the world. It's an overwhelming compulsion. The Apostle Paul will tramp for endless miles. He'll cross entire countries. He'll travel from continent to continent to preach the gospel. He travels here a great distance. So we see here then that it says that Paul departed from them to go to Macedonia. And then in verse 2, and when he had gone over these parts. When he had gone over these parts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Now, in that sentence, there's maybe, I don't know, hundreds of miles of travel, nearly a thousand. Um, We get a clue to the extent of this. I want you to turn with me in your Bible, please, to Romans 15 and verse 19. The book of Romans 15 and verse 19. And you'll read there these words. Romans 15, verse 19. 
through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul had preached everywhere from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That's the extent, the geographical extent of his ministry. Now the question is, where was this place, Illyricum? Well, that's an old Roman name for an area north of Greece. And today, in modern times, we would call that Albania. We don't know what city of Illyricum Paul preached in, but it would be a natural place to visit. If you think about it, Paul usually seems to have travelled along the Roman roads. The missionary journeys so far have followed the Roman road across from Troas onto Macedonia, along through Philippi and Thessalonica. That's called the uh, Via Echinacea. And it wound its way through Thessalonia up to the Adriatic coast, to Dyrrhachium, carrying commerce from the east across to the eastern coast and the western coast of the Greek, Macedonian, Yugoslavian area, the Slavic area, where you could then catch a ship straight across into Italy and you could join up with the Via Appia at Brindisi and then you could travel another Roman road over to Rome. That's the road that Paul would take to go to Illyricum. Now the question is, when did he go there? Well, if you look at the maps at the back of your Bible, if you have the book of maps, look at the map at the back of your Bible sometime and trace the journeys of Paul. And you'll likely have a map that talks about his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, and so on. And if you look through them all, you'll not find anywhere in the maps that he's been to Illyricum. And the reason for that is because it's not mentioned in Acts as part of the journeys outlined there. But if you work out all of the places where Paul was on his first and second and third missionary journeys, the only possibility, by a process of elimination, the only window of opportunity that Paul has to visit Albania is when he's in verse 2 of chapter 20, when he is going over these parts. I'll come back to that in a wee moment. But right now I want to ask, why did Paul walk to Illyricum? Why would Paul walk, remember these are foot journeys, why would he walk all the way, think of a map of that part of the world, why would he walk all the way from the coast at Philippi along a road and up into Albania? Why would he do that? Quite simple. That the gospel might be preached. That he might reach lost sinners. At Illyricum, it tells us in Romans, he fully preached the gospel of Christ. And then he turned, having fully preached the gospel of Christ in, in Illyricum, he turned, giving them much exhortation, verse 2, and came into Greece. And that's another several hundred miles 
And he remained there for about three months. And here's the point. If you want to write a wee note in the side of your Bible, just beside this passage, beside verse 2, or maybe verse 3, write this. Paul wrote the epistle to Romans here. This part of Acts. And that's how we know it's fresh in his mind. At this point, the gospel has been preached the whole way from Jerusalem to Albania by Paul. The extent of his journey. And look at the enormity of the danger there. The next thing we see is that while he's in Greece, he's in Corinth in Greece. They're abode, they abode there three months. And when the Jews led wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. There's a wee bit of interesting background here. Paul had decided to sail. He would be departing from Corinth by ship and no doubt would be sailing on a direct voyage to Jerusalem because it's now the spring of the year and it's before the Passover and Jews will be travelling en masse to Jerusalem from all over the world. They would gather in Jerusalem for the great feast and sacrifice at the temple. It was something every pious Jew would want to do at least once in his life, and he would take a ship. It seems that there were even charter vessels simply taking shipfuls of Jews over to Jerusalem. They'd be chartering ships for the journey. And Paul and his companions had this money that they've been collecting all around the country and they want to take it to Jerusalem. And the best way to do that is to book a passage on one of these charter vessels. Simple. But it seems that Paul has been forewarned of some plotting going on among the Jews. Wouldn't it be simple for a group of hostile Jews to wait until they're out at sea? Wouldn't it be simple some night when the ship's out in the water and it's a bit rough for to simply say, where's that man Paul gone? A wonder, has he been washed overboard? Where has he gone? It would be simple for a group of hostile Jews simply to overpower him while he slept, to dispatch him overboard to drown. No one would know what would happen, what had happened. Or maybe they could even say, that man Paul, he must have done himself in. That man was away in the head, you know. He's been going round the, the synagogues and nobody likes him because he's been talking like a fanatic about all this stuff about this Messiah Jesus. We think he just simply had enough. No one would know what had happened. Lots of people lost their life at sea in those days. So Paul changed his plans at the very last minute. 
He cancelled his sailing and he travelled and stayed overland. He went back up the eastern coast of Greece. He travelled up past Athens up to Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi and eventually was able to sail the short journey over to Troas. Verse 5. Perseverance. The extent of the journey. The ever-present enormity of the danger. You know, the Christian life is an adventure. It really is. It's not always easy. But no matter what the circumstances were, Paul kept going. There was no turning back. Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Paul never looked back. Let us simply be prepared to go to great lengths and to take whatever danger and discomfort there may be in the efforts that we make to bring the gospel to sinners. Christian perseverance. But the second thing we learn is perspicacity. Verse 4. And there accompanied him into Asia, so Peter of Berea, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. What a list of names. Let's think about this offering for a minute that Paul's lifting as he travels around the various churches. For the best part, it seems to be very successful. But I want you to turn with me, please, to Second Corinthians chapter 8 and to verse 1 just to try and get an impression of the work that Paul's doing here. Remember, he's in Corinth at this minute. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take unto us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. These people had lifted money. Even the people who were poor, and there were those who were poor. Although the Christian churches in the West and the Gentile areas were in wealthy areas, and there were wealthy people in them, as we've seen, they were mostly composed of slaves. Even they gave to the Lord's work. Not all, though. While Paul was ministering at Ephesus for three years, and the church there was abounding in blessing, he received news of the problems that were besetting the church at Corinth. Members of Chloe's household 
had told him about sectarianism and sexual immorality and problems with headship and difficulties around the Lord's Supper and a terrible lack of love and misuse of spiritual gifts and, of course, difficulties with the Lord's return. And one of the things seems to be that they were reluctant to contribute to the fund for the Jerusalem saints. So Paul wrote to them. He wrote to the Corinthians, hoping to set matters straight, and he planned to meet Titus at Troas on his way to Macedonia. He planned to hear an update on the situation, on the Corinthian dilemma. And we find about it, we find we read about it in Second Corinthians chapter two and verse twelve. Just turn back a wee bit to Second Corinthians two, verse twelve. And Paul is hoping that he's going to meet Titus. This is just the, the, the corresponding part of the book of Acts. His chapter 20, he's gone over uh, to Macedonia. He hopes to meet um, Titus on the way. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. So Paul journeyed over to Macedonia and began to travel along the Roman road, the Via Ignatia, from Philippi to Thessalonia, knowing that for sure Titus would be coming along that same road in the opposite direction. And they met, and the news was good. Second Corinthians seven and verse five. Second Corinthians seven and verse five. And it says therefore we were when we were come unto Macedonia our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side, but without were fightings within were fears. Nevertheless God that comforteth those who are cast down comforted us. By the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that I rejoiced the more. So now Paul's at Corinth, and he's in Greece, and this offering is ready to go. He's got all the money from the churches in Asia Minor. Even Corinth has now decided to contribute and it's the winter spring of AD 55-56 and he's gathering together his team to take the money back to Jerusalem and he's got representatives from the churches to go with him. He wants to demonstrate after all the unity of the church. So he gathers up representatives from each of the churches. Let's look at them. Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. There accompanied him Sopater of Berea. Remember those Bereans, those were the earliest Christians who were so diligent in studying the scriptures. And a church had been born there, and they have contributed to the fund, contributed generously. And now this man, Sopater, will represent them. And then there's two men from Thessalonica, a man called Aristarchus and a man called Secundus. 
And look at the names. I don't know whether this is deliberate or what, but well, it's deliberate, of course, because it's in God's Word, but I don't know why this, these men were deliberately chosen for their names, let me put it like that. But they seem to suggest that these people are from opposite ends of society. Aristarchus would be an aristocrat, wouldn't he? While Secundus, I think, would likely be a slave. A few weeks ago, do you remember, we talked about how people give their babies strange names. We talked about that man who was the lecturer in Ephesus called Tyrant, Tyrannus. Imagine calling your child Tyrant. Secundus means number two. Now, I don't know what way you call your children. Number one, would you come in, please? Number two, sit you down at the table. Number four, you know, and so on. Would you do that? Would you just give your children numbers instead of names? I don't think you'd get away with it. But if you were a slave owner in those days, and you had a couple of slaves, it's likely you wouldn't value them very much. It's likely you wouldn't even bother finding out what their names were. You would often just call them slave, slave, do this, slave, do Who cares what a slave's called? If you had two slaves, you would have number one and number two. You wouldn't even dignify them with giving them a name. To take away a person's name is to take away their human dignity. I know someone who is very, very cross with a couple of people. And she's so cross that she refuses to call them by name. She refers to them by the place where they come from. And when she's talking about someone, she'll say, huh, she said to me that, that, that Canada. And that's all she would ever call her. And the reason she does that simply because she wants to take away their dignity, their human value and worth. Whether she intends that or not is another thing, but that's the effect. So they took away the dignity of the slaves by taking away their names. Number one, number two. So you have these two people. You have Aristarchus, who is likely an aristocrat. And on the other hand, you have a slave, Secundus, number two. And if that isn't a truly representative group, then what would be? And it indicates for us the amazing difference that Christianity had made in those people's lives. Because up until that point, up until they came to know the Lord, up until they came to love him and serve him, an aristocrat wouldn't even have looked at a slave. Never mind go on a trip with a slave. And a slave with money... Imagine gathering this huge offering, enough to feed people in Jerusalem, and you need trustworthy people to take it away over to Jerusalem and to look after it and to represent the churches it has come from. And you need people that are trustworthy. Would you trust a slave? Five or six men in this wee group traveling along this Roman road at night with all this money and a slave who's a nobody with thousands and thousands of pounds. What's he going to do? Go to run away. 
except that he's been saved by God's grace. What an amazing change. A noble lord and a slave, both believers, both entrusted with money, both equal in the sight of God. From the churches in modern Turkey then comes Gaius of Derbe and Timotheus from Lystra. Of the province of Asia and Ephesus and its surroundings comes Tychicus and Trophimus. And these men are representing churches so that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to say, look how much these Gentiles care for you. But there's another reason. And I suggest it's every bit as important. Paul's taking these men to Jerusalem because everything that we do with finance in the church must be perspicacious. I learned that word the other day and I was determined to use it. It's a wonder of doing crosswords. It must be open. You can see it. Nothing should be hidden. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3 At verse 4, Paul says, When I come, talking to the Corinthians on his way there, When I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality into Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. 1 Corinthians 16, 3-4. Paul was anxious for these Corinthian churches and no doubt all of the churches to know that he himself would not be involved in any way with these offerings. This is very important. When money in the church is concerned, there has to be no doubt that everything is being done openly and properly and honestly. So the people who handled the offering in Corinth had to have the confidence of the church. And even if Paul's going himself to Jerusalem and they hand the money to Paul and say, look, here's our offering for Jerusalem. You take it with you. Paul, I'm not touching it. You give it to your representatives and let them bring it. I'm not carrying the money. That's how it ought to be. Everything concerning finance and church government should be freely known to anyone who wants to know. So the church representatives are sent to Troas by ship. They're going to go direct from Corinth. Paul's going to set off on foot to travel up through Greece and Macedonia to get to Philippi pick up Luke. That's when we come to our final point, and it's a wee short one. What has Luke been doing? Look at verse 5. Those going before tarried for us at Troas. So Paul has travelled over land, and he's reached Philippi, and the narrative changes. And Luke's record now changes from they and him to we and us. 
He's writing in the first person again. And he hasn't done that since Luke chapter 16, when Luke was in Philippi with Paul and Silas. And then when Paul and Silas and Timothy left Philippi to go down the coast towards Athens, Luke seems to have been left behind. He's pastoring and mentoring the new believers. He's establishing an eldership. He's teaching Christian doctrine. He's been doing that for four years now. And the church is well-founded. And he's going to join Paul on the journey onwards. And no doubt, when the party gets to Jerusalem, and his eyewitness account continues, he's going to represent Philippi. And the giving over of the money. So it's springtime. And the ships can sail again. There's no sailings in the winter months. And the feast of the Passover that ushers in the wake of the feast of unleavened bread is now over. It's late April AD 56. And they leave the port of Neopolis, the port of Philippi, for Troas. A journey of five days by ship. And Acts 16, verse 11. They had come in two days with the wind behind them. But now the prevailing winds are against them. And they sail for Troas. And in a week or two's time, not next week, but the week after, we'll see a very interesting episode that happened at Troas. But for now, a whole new chapter has begun in Paul's life and in the life of the early church.